So let's just jump right into it in Matthew 16, uh, 25 to 26. Jesus says this. He says, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, for my kingdom, for my cause, you will actually save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? He ends by saying, is anything worth more than your soul? And when we hear this and when we uh, are in approach with the teachings of Jesus, what Jesus teaches in the Beatitudes is a guide on how not to lose your soul. <laughs> that what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 are an invitation of how not to lose your soul. Because this is what's so unique about these blessing statements is everything Jesus says makes no sense to our natural minds. Like those who mourn are blessed. What? Those who are poor in spirit are blessed. Because in the world and the natural, we think, no, to be blessed or to be happy or to be successful is to be rich and to have financial security and to have a lot of things. But Jesus says, no, 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 in my kingdom, the poor in spirit are actually the ones that are gonna be blessed. Because what happens is, as we read at the beginning of this series, right, Proverbs says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to death. <laughs> there is a way in this world that has been ingrained, right? This is why scripture says to unlearn the patterns of this world. There's patterns that have been ingrained into us as humans, as a result of sin. And Jesus is saying, I'm here to transform you from the inside out, to renew your mind into my patterns and my value system. And what I say is actually success and happiness. But the good news here today is if you feel like you've already lost your soul, if you feel like you've misplaced it, if you feel like you're too deep into sin and you don't know how to get out of it, if you feel just burnt out, the invitation today is to get it back, <laughs> to get your soul back. Because is anything worth more than your soul? Right, to let go of the empty pursuits of the world and to receive a new heart. Ezekiel 36 says this, and I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. How beautiful is that? That Jesus wants to completely transform every facet of our being to become like him. Right, we've been talking about how this series is, is really a series of discipleship, that we're being discipled into the life and the person and the, the nature of Jesus. And how beautiful is it that our heart, we see, right, we have this stony heart, which is this, this prophetic picture of the reality that we live in, that our heart is, is calloused. <laughs> It's been hardened, hardened by the, 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 the trials of life and, and the lies that have been spoken to us and, and the trauma that we've experienced. But Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to know that in my kingdom, you can actually save your soul and I can take that thing that has been callous and abused and hurt and I can give you a new heart, a heart of flesh. He doesn't want to just bandage you up and get you along your way. He wants to give you something new. He wants to give you a new heart. And so this morning, we're going to dive into Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, which says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So I'm just going to pray as we dive in. So Jesus, thank you so much for your presence. Thank you for your people. Uh, we just respond in faith 
this morning as we hear your word and what you want to speak to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would uh, just give us an ability to be laser focused into what you want to say, that any distraction, any confusion, any uh, just... Uh, just distraction from the enemy. I pray that there would just be a, a barrier of protection. I pray for a sound mind this morning uh, that we are here hungry and ready to receive whatever you want to deposit in us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today we're gonna talk about blessed are the pure in heart. I think when we think about purity, uh, oftentimes we think about abstinence, having a clean, sinless life, and though these things do accurately describe purity, they are external purities. Because Jesus says here specifically, blessed are the what? Pure in heart. <laughs> Jesus is very specific. Right? He could have just said, blessed are the pure for they will see God. But he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Right? There's an internal purity <laughs> that he is speaking to. Right, your internal world, the heart describes your internal world, right? your soul. That Jesus is more concerned with the posture of your heart than the posture of your hands. Amen. You can tweet me on that. Jesus is more concerned with the heart posture that you come with every day, every moment. When you come into worship, he is more concerned with the posture of your heart than the posture of your hands. Right? Create in me a clean heart and clean hands. I think it's so significant because when you just listen to the teaching of Jesus, it, it's, it's, it's so interesting because he rarely answers anyone's questions <laughs> and he's always giving questions. And what's so unique is, is Jesus' is teaching, you even think about the parables and his disciples are saying, Jesus, why are you giving these elaborate, confusing parables? No one understands what you're saying. And he's saying that I want people to understand the deep things of God. I want people who are going to catch on to what I'm saying to actually be hungry enough to seek it out and search it out. And so this is why we see Jesus doesn't waste time speaking to our external lives because he knows that our hearts must first be changed. When we experience this heart shift, heart shift, our behaviors and actions and external lives will also change as a result. That our behavior is going to be an overflow of the shift that happens in our heart. So I want to define this and, and, and give the trajectory this morning. To have a pure heart is to have pure motives. To have a pure heart is to have pure motives. That a motive is made up of your motivation. It is whatever becomes your driving force to do something. That your motives will also determine your fruit. That bad motives produce bad fruit and good motives produce good fruit. It's as simple as that, right? Your motives are your root system. And again, why Jesus was so focused on the heart, why he speaks to the heart, why he says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart is because he knows that your internal world naturally will affect your external world. And I think the problem for so many of us is we're so focused in trying to fix and repair and rehab the external when God is saying there's something internal actually going on here that we need to work on. Right, Proverbs says this, to guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Jesus also says, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. 
So the fruit in your life is all an overflow of your motives. So when I ask you guys, is your motive to control or is it dependency? Is it personal gain or sacrificial love? Is it pride or is it humility? (laughs) Proverbs 16, verse two, you guys ready for this? All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Woo! That in our own eyes, we think that we're doing what is right and what is okay, but the Lord says, no, 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 I actually see your heart. I see your motives. I see why you're doing. I see why you're serving. That the, the motives are, of our heart are weighed, are tested by the Lord. That remember, there is a way that has been wired into our being. But we are transformed by renewing our minds to his way and unlearning the way of the world. But I want to say this, that becoming self-aware of your motives will save you from the majority of your problems, conflicts, temptations, and struggles. If you just become aware of, wait, what is actually my motivation for this moment? What is, what is my motivation for confronting this person? What is my motivation for, you know, wanting to, to, to be seen in this moment? What is, what is my motivation for what I'm about to say? And I really do believe this, that if we just simply become aware, what is the root system that has become rooted in my heart? It will save us from the majority of our problems. You guys ready for some fire quotes? Oswald Chambers says this, Jesus offends people because he lays emphasis on their unseen life because he speaks of motives rather than actions. Here's another one. It is not what a person does that determines whether their work is sacred or secular. It is why he does it. It is why. That our motivations are our why. (laughs) Why are you at church this morning? Are you here? (laughs) This is what I love because we, as Christians, we think this idea that there's this separation of here's the secular and here's the sacred, here's the holy and here's the unholy. But we see when the veil was torn that the spirit actually left the temple. It left the physical building and now dwells in us. And so what determines what is secular or sacred is our motives. (laughs) Why are we doing it? That your art as you create can be sacred. (laughs) The way you love your wife can be sacred. That you can be eating oatmeal and it could be worship. (laughs) If the motive of your your heart is saying, Jesus, I just want to see you. I want to be with you. James 4.3 says this. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend that which you get on your pleasures, right? Your motives are your why, and God doesn't bless wrong motives. Now, how often do we ask God for a relationship when our motive is actually because we feel lonely? Or we ask God to bless our finances when our motive is actually that we don't trust him to provide for us. Can we keep going? <laughs> Or we ask God to make our spouse love us the way we want them to love us, but our motive is that we're actually insecure. (laughs) 
And I want you guys to catch this because those aren't wrong things to ask. Asking for relationship isn't a wrong thing. Asking for your wife to love you the way you want them to love you isn't a wrong thing. But the motives are what defines if it is right or wrong. Right, the motivation behind them. Remember in Matthew 5, 8, Jesus says that your motives, right, being pure in heart are tied to our ability to see God. So what does it mean to see God? I'm gonna simplify this. To see God means to know God, to know his nature, because when you know what he is like, only then can you see him rightly. Because wrong motives are a result of having a distorted view of God, which means right motives are a result of seeing God rightly. Amen. Wrong motives are a result of having a distorted view of God, which means that right motives are a result of seeing God rightly. I don't know if you guys knew this, but the word for presence in scripture is actually the same word used for face. That being in God's presence is to be face to face, to look right into his eyes, to be intimately close, to see him for who he actually is. But what usually stops us from seeing Jesus and being in his presence is our sin and shame. I want you guys to catch this. What's interesting that during the fall, right, in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sin, so you guys know the story, it says that they hid themselves from God. And oftentimes we interpret this because of the patterns that have been ingrained into our mind. We think when Adam and Eve sinned, God pulled away. <laughs> that God disconnected. That God was embarrassed of them. That God was like, what the heck are you doing? But it actually says that Adam and Eve hid. And the next verse says that God was calling out their name. Adam, where are you? What's interesting, of course, God can see them. It's just fig leaves, <laughs> right? But he's speaking to their heart. Where are you? Where'd you go? What happened to our connection? And we need to get this. It's because when we are struggling with sin or struggling with shame, God is not disconnecting. We do. <laughs> or we think that he is. And so as a result, we pull away. But the reality is that he's calling your name. Amen. Brad, where are you? Right? Ethan, where are you? And we need to get this paradigm shift, guys, because it will shift the way that you see God. Amen. That when you limit your view of God through the lens of your sin and shame, it results in a distorted image of God. But real purity comes when you look at your sin and shame through the lens of his face. I've said this before, but if you want to know how God responds to you in the midst of your sin and your struggles, look at how he responded to sinners in the Bible. <laughs> right? Think of the woman caught in adultery. How did Jesus see her? And you guys know the story, right? The, the Pharisees, they, they get this woman caught in adultery and they bring her to Jesus to to embarrass him, to shame him, to challenge him publicly. They bring him, they bring this woman, they have this whole huddle and they're saying, Jesus, you know the law says that if someone commits adultery that they should be stoned. 
And you know the, this, this interaction, Jesus looks at them, right? He goes in the ground, he writes on the sand, or writes on the ground, and he says, he here who has no sin cast the first stone. Right, he just put uno reverse card on them. He who has no sin cast the first stone. As you guys know, the Pharisees start dropping their stone because they're like, wait, I actually have a lot of sin in my life. And what's so powerful about this interaction, Jesus goes and looks to this woman's face who is just publicly embarrassed, right? Like I can't imagine the embarrassment, the the shame, the guilt, maybe the trauma that happened in this moment. And Jesus looks at her and says, woman, who here condemns you? And what's interesting, if you think about it, everyone was, (laughs) but he says, no one is. And neither do I. And he says, so then go and sin no longer. (sighs) That this interaction, I want us to get this. That in the midst of our sin and shame, Jesus bends down and looks at you and he says, look at my face. What do you see? Do you see disappointment? No. Do you see anger? No. Do you see shame on my face? No. I don't condemn you. Someone needs to hear that. I don't condemn you. So go and sin no longer. But I think the key for a lot of our sin cycles and struggles is we simply need to just see his face. We simply need to see how he sees us. That the main key to freedom from sin is realizing how God sees you in the midst of it and realizing that he has a better way. That his face reveals his nature and knowing his nature empowers us to be free from sin. There's a quote that said, Jesus didn't come to change the father's mind about you. He came to change your mind about the father. That this was the primary revelation that Jesus came to bring. I don't know if you guys knew this. This is the reason Jesus got killed. (laughs) There's a lot of reasons, but this is the main reason. That Jesus went around and saying, hey guys, God is actually our father. That the primary way he connected, related, described God was as father. And what happened is for years and years, the people of Israel, the Jewish people have gone so disconnected from the nature of God. They've gone so disconnected from who God was actually like that they've, they've built all of these traditions and things aside from what God has established to try to be right with God and to try to see who God is because they've gone so disconnected. And Jesus comes and shows up on the scene, God in flesh, God with us. And he says, when you see me, what? You see the Father. When you see how I treat sinners, that's how the Father treats you. That Jesus wasn't hanging on the cross and saying, God, forgive them. Change your mind about them. That the act on the cross, the Father, Son, and the Spirit were hanging there, dying for our sins in the body of Jesus, saying, forgive them so that you can see who God actually is. In Matthew 6, 22 to 23, let's go there. You guys okay? Yes. All right. 
It says this, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. If that light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. That we commonly view this scripture with a literal lens that we shouldn't look at bad or sinful things because our eyes are the doorways to our hearts and minds. And that's 100% true. But I think there's something deeper here that Jesus is saying. Because as we know, that's about the external. Jesus always confronts the root, the internal. When I was reading the scripture, the, the Holy Spirit showed me that if our eyes, okay, stay with me, if our eyes, how we see God is good, then our whole body is full of light. Our internal world is pure. But if our eyes are bad, if we have a distorted view of God, our whole body is full of darkness. That your eye is a lamp to your body. How you see God will dictate what's going on on the inside. Will dictate your internal world. If you still feel that God is condemning you, man, you're only going to receive condemnation. (laughs) If you don't believe that God can actually free you from sin, then, well, you're going to still stay there. To see God is to know God. To see God is to know God. And it's hard to receive from someone you don't know. I'll take it even further. It's hard to receive from someone you don't trust. That how we see God will dictate if you'll be full of light or full of dark. That for so many of us, because we don't know God's nature, we don't trust him, but your internal world is determined by how healthy your sight is. How healthy is your sight? How healthy do you actually view God? How, how aligned is your view of God to the view that Jesus revealed God to be? How is your sight of God compared to what scripture reveals to us what God is actually like? And why I am so passionate about this is because this is literally my story that I grew up knowing God, knowing about God, singing about God, but I lacked a deep, actual encounter, understanding, real level intimacy with God. That for years of my life, I just, you know, went through the cycles of just being an external Christian, but internally, I was so full of darkness. I was so struggling with all of these things. I was depressed. I hated myself. was struggling with addiction. And the moment that changed my life, and I want you guys to see this, and I want to just impart this to you guys, that there was this moment, as you, as you guys know my, my testimony, there was this moment where I was like, God, I have all this brokenness. I have all of this sadness. I, I hate myself. I, I, I don't know what to do. I, I don't doubt that you exist. I know that you're real, but there has to be more to this. Like, I, I, there, there has to be something real about who you are. Otherwise, this is not cutting it. And what was so interesting, what happened was I, I went to my bedroom, and I just started seeking the Lord by myself. But the motive of my heart, I want you guys to hear this. The motive of my heart was this. God, I just want to see you. God, I just want to know who you actually are. 
I didn't go and say, God, make my life easier. Take this sin away. Remove this from me. Cast this thing out. It was just, God, I just, I need to know you because I don't know you. I've been told who you are, but I personally don't know you. And what happened in that bedroom was four months of just encountering God by myself. The Lord from that place healed me from self-hatred and depression and addiction. It's because of the motive. Like Chris Valentin, he says this, he says, when you believe in God, you're saved, but when you realize God believes in you, you become transformed. But this is it. That the moment I actually understood what God was like, that God wasn't cold and distant, God wasn't angry at me, God wasn't hating me, Jesus actually died on the cross for me, <laughs> for you, for us. That when I actually experienced the love of the Father, it changed everything. So in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 4, it says this, For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to what? To please God, not people. Amen to that. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. That our purpose is to please God, not people. This is a thermometer. How do we decipher if our motives are pure or not? <laughs> Am I trying to please God or are we trying to please people? The persons whose primary focus is to please God, not out of striving, but out of genuine love and a pure heart is the one that's going to actually see him rightly. This is what we're going after. To have a pure heart is a heart that says, God, my motives are to please you. My motives are towards you. God, your kingdom, your will be done. Amen. That we're not here to build the kingdom of breakthrough. We're not here to build the kingdom of Andrew. We're not here to build whatever other kingdom my Heart says, God, our heart should say, God, we're here to please you. And who knows that the only thing that pleases God is faith. Like God isn't asking for workers, right? He's asking for lovers. He's not asking for slaves. He's asking for children. That faith is simply saying, Jesus, I put all of my weight in who you are and what you've done. And I live my life through that lens. That is what pleases God. Amen. So Psalm 27, verse 4, about to wrap up, says this, one thing I ask from the Lord, right? We know this scripture. David says, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze, right? To see the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. A heart that is pure is a heart that longs to see his beauty. It's a heart that motives are not compromised by pleasing people or chasing the fading pleasures of this world, but it's the heart that's motives and motivations are towards loving, pleasing, and being with Jesus. It's an undivided heart. So I'm gonna close here in Ephesians chapter one, verse 17 to 18. It says this, I keep asking that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of revelation 
and wisdom so that you may know him better. Let's stop right there. This is Paul writing to the church of Ephesus. He says that I keep asking, I pray, I labor that the Lord will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. For what? So that you can raise the dead? No. So you can just speak in tongues? No. So that you can have a lot of money? No. But so that you'll know him better. And from that, you'll do all those other things. Right? These signs follow those who what? Believe. (laughs) Or give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they may know him better, so that they may see you. Verse 18 says, I pray the eyes of your what? Your heart. Come on. That the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. That Adam and Eve had perfect union with God in the garden, that their eyes were already opened, that they knew God, they, they walked with God in the cool of the day, that they had fellowship with God. But when the serpent came, I don't know if you guys remember this, he deceived Eve by claiming what? That her eyes would be opened. Says if you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. That sounds fun. But in that moment, the opposite happened. <laughs> when sin entered into the picture, the eyes of humanity's heart became distorted and darkened. Because what did they do? What was the first thing they do? They hid. Their eyes were closed. Their spiritual eyes were closed because if their spiritual eyes were open, they could have just went straight to God. God, forgive me, heal me, I repent, right? But they hid. So when we are pure in heart and have a heart that sees God rightly without distortion, we rebel from the curse of the fall. And the eyes of our heart become enlightened and in that moment, you will experience real spiritual awakening. Anyone want that this morning? I want that. I want the eyes of my heart to become open. I want to see God even clearer than I already do. I I want any scales, right? We know the story of Paul. I want any scales that are blocking, that are distorting my view of a clear picture of the Father. I want that to fall off. And this is my prayer over us this morning, that God would give us the spirit of revelation and wisdom that the eyes of our heart will be open. So I'm going to end with this question. The worship team can come up. How do you see God? How do you see God? Because your image of God is the most important thing about you. How you see him determines how you see yourself and how you see others. This is often why people who think God is angry and cold and distant in turn become angry and cold people. Or people who view God and his love as just accepting and carefree are usually people compromised by sin or or people that permit it. Because as you behold him, you become like him. And as you become like him, you rightly behold him. Let's say that again. As you behold Jesus, you start to become like him. And as you become like him, you rightly behold him.